You know one of the problems when you come to Calvary Church? One of the problems is, is that usually I'm up here, or Tom's up here, or Josh Mateer, or Andy and Mark leading worship, or Yama or Beth, or others helping with the singing. Celeste will be up here, or Bruce talking about missions or making announcements. Sarah up here this morning leading us in prayer. Mason, others on staff. And the problem with that is that every week when you come and you see that, it can give the false impression that somehow this is the important work of ministry, that this is the stuff that God is doing in life, and you've come to sort of receive what we're here to give. Nothing could be further from the truth. But the problem is, is that every Sunday morning, only a few people sort of get up here and are are engaged in leading and worship and preaching in a visible sort of way. That's also a problem, by the way, when you read the book of Romans. It's very easy to read the book of Romans and come away thinking, well, look at this Apostle Paul. He's an apostle to the Gentiles. He's been called by God to do amazing things. He wrote this book of Romans, and it's easy as you're reading through the book of Romans to get the impression of that's what real ministry looks like. That's that's what God is doing in this world. And that you can get the wrong impression that God is building his church on the backs of Paul and perhaps maybe Peter and James and John and a few others, and that we have the church that we have in the world today because of people like Paul and Peter and James and John. You might think that in the book of Romans, unless you keep reading all the way through the book of Romans until you get to Romans 16. In fact, I'd like you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn to Romans 16. If you're using one of the church Bibles, it's page 923. In Romans 16, we have something unique in the Scriptures. We have the longest list of named individuals and their contributions to ministry. Now, I have to be honest with you. When I first was laying out the sermon series in the book of Romans, I did what perhaps some of you do when you get to a list of names in the Bible. I just breezed through it and thought, let's get on to whatever else might be in here that's meaty and good. I say that to my shame. The Lord, however, said, don't miss this opportunity. Here's an opportunity to recognize that God's church is not being built on the contributions of a few, but in a wide diversity of contributions of the many. And that because our minds have been trained by this world as to what the world thinks is important, When we come on a Sunday morning or when we open the Scriptures, we're looking for who's up front, who did the writing, who's talked about the most. And God says, here's an opportunity for us together as a church to realize that the things that God commends, the things that are important contributions to God, are different than what the world thinks is important. 
And God reminded me, and I'm reminding you, that every word of Scripture is written by God and is profitable for us, even these long, crazy lists of names. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work through verses 3 through 16. And what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the individuals who are mentioned here. And the way we're going to do this is I'm going to, in just a minute as we go through this, put their names up on the screen behind me. But this is not a history lesson, so we're not simply trying to do investigation into people who lived 2,000 years ago. I think they represent you and I today. And they represent different ways in which you and I make contributions to the kingdom of God. So what I want you to do is as we go through this list, I'm going to try to give you sort of modern day equivalents to what they were doing. And I just simply ask that you would look to see where you might fall in the list. Because I have a hunch that because we're easily deceived by this world and its wisdom, that we might be overlooking some ways that we have been making contributions to God's kingdom. And this morning I want you to realize that maybe the world doesn't notice what you're doing, but God does. And I'd like you as you go through this list to hear encouragement from the Lord that what he considers to be important contributions to his church and to his kingdom can be vastly different than perhaps what the people around us think. So as we go through the list, just ask the Lord, where might you fit? What might you be doing that's being reflected in this text today? Okay, we're going to begin in verse 3. The reason we're not doing verses 1 and 2 is that Phoebe, who's a deacon from the church in Cancrea, we covered her a couple of weeks ago because of her prominence in this list. She deserved a sermon of her own. So we talked about Phoebe a couple of weeks ago. Now we're back in the list and we begin in verse 3 where Paul says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. So on our list we have Priscilla and Aquila. You also have notes if you'd like to take notes. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple. They were originally in the city of Rome, and they were expelled from the city of Rome during a time of persecution. They somewhere met up with the Apostle Paul, went with Paul to the city of Ephesus, where Paul was starting a church. In the city of Ephesus, Paul's life was in danger, and he's reminding us here that Priscilla and Aquila's life were also in danger, their lives were also in danger during that time as they went to Ephesus to help start that church. <clears throat> At some point, God moved Priscilla and Aquila back to Rome, and they uh, have a church meeting in their house. They're not what we would say are in sort of full-time ministry. They're not paid to do this. They're tent makers, literally. Their job is they make tents. And they have a group of people who meet in their house regularly for church. So as I look at this today, Priscilla and Aquila, they represent those among us who are small group leaders, for example, who have a group of people meeting in your home, perhaps, that you are providing 
care and concern for. Sunday school teachers and leaders that are here uh, at the church, again, you may not come up here on the platform, but you're doing an incredible contribution to God's work, and he's advancing his kingdom through the work that you do. Priscilla and Aquila, in my mind, also represent those who are willing to move wherever God may send them, not necessarily because of a job, but because of the work of the kingdom that God is doing. They view their job as serving the church as opposed to viewing the church as serving their job. They can represent those who are willing to go off from an established church and go be part of a church plant. Maybe that's been your contribution. I think about a couple, you may remember them, Todd and Allison. They were a young couple in our church, and they felt that God was calling them to move to the Bay Area, to San Francisco. The basis of that was not a new job, but simply the fact that they felt there needed to be more Christian presence in San Francisco, and so they were following the Lord there and were going there to look for jobs. That's what Priscilla and Aquila are doing. Maybe that's your contribution, that you have the job that you have not because it might make the most money or give you the most prestige or be the most comfortable, but because it allows you to serve God's kingdom the best. If that's you, God is commending that and acknowledging you can't build a church if no one's ever willing to move somewhere else. You can't help places like Rome or San Francisco or Ephesus come to faith if no one's willing to leave a job they have in one place and go somewhere else. And maybe you're just such a person where you've viewed your job as being secondary to what God is doing in his kingdom and you've allowed him to move you to a different church to start some new work or a different place in the country. That's what God is commending here with Priscilla and Aquila. All right, keep going, the middle of verse five. Greet my dear friend, Apennitus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. What Apennitus represents is he literally was the first person to become a Christian. And when Paul says the province of Asia, he means what we call today modern-day Turkey. Somehow, Apennitus moved from Turkey to Rome, but Paul is acknowledging that Apennitus was the first Christian in a region. To me, then, he represents those here who were the first to come to faith in your family. For those of us who grew up in a Christian family, we don't, we don't understand how difficult it can be to be the first person to be a Christian in a family. Your siblings think you're crazy. Your parents think you've joined some sort of cult. Your kids don't want anything to do with you because they think you've lost it. You don't have necessarily the background or the structures. All the stories are sort of new. You don't have all of the traditions. And we don't realize what a difficult thing is. Somebody's got to be the first Christian in a family. I think of Elaine Meredith who was the first Christian in her family in the city of Detroit, and God led her to faith, and that's a difficult road to walk when you've got no support from any of the other biological members of your family. Maybe that's your contribution. The world doesn't necessarily notice that, but God does. 
You've been asked to walk a difficult road, to be the first one to perhaps be made fun of or to be shunned or have everybody think you're the strange uncle or you're the weird aunt. If that's been your journey, that's what a penitent represents. And that's an important contribution to the kingdom of God. Number three, verse six. Greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Now jump down to verse 12 because a couple of people get the same commendation. Verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those we think are twins. Those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Four people in this section of scripture are commended for being hard workers in the church. It's not surprising. All four of them are women. What was true 2,000 years ago in the church in Rome, still true today in Calvary Church and in churches all over the world, that much of the hard work is done by women. That much of the ministry that happens in the church, much of the activity that's going on is done by women. Now, this also applies to men too. There are some men who work very hard. I just thought it was interesting that all four of these were women. But maybe this is your contribution. The word for hard also means much. These women did a lot of work. Now, we don't know exactly what they did. But the word for work that Paul uses here is the same word he uses of his own ministry. Somehow, these women are simply engaged in doing work that's necessary for the church to happen. I think of Carol Spencer, one of just many, many people around there. She does so much work at this church, we have an office for her. She works doing background checks and works in children's ministry. She doesn't work in Monday night Bible study. She's a woman who works hard and does much for the Lord. Maybe that's your contribution. Nobody may see you up here on the platform, But you're engaged all over the place. You're working in the parking lot. You're engaged in ministry wherever it might be found. You're a hard worker doing a lot of things for God. Well, that's what God is commending here in verse 6. Keep going, number 4. Verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Our best guess as to Andronicus and Junia is that they are what we kind of refer today as supported workers in ministry, meaning some others are paying for their salary so that they can be missionaries. That's what we think they are. We think Andronicus and Junia are missionaries. What they represent then is missionaries, those who work among us in parachurch ministries, those who work in what we call non-governmental organizations which are trying to help alleviate the effects of sin in the world, those who work on staff at a church. And the thing about Andronicus and Junia, nobody except that they're mentioned here would have remembered their name because they're not, and I hate to use this word, quote unquote successful or famous like the Apostle Paul was. But Paul says, look, anybody who knows anything, the apostles, know that Andronicus and Junia have been incredibly faithful in the missionary work that they've been doing. 
so too perhaps you, not necessarily being recognized every Sunday morning or being in a position of prominence, people who know something about ministry, especially God, realizes that what we're looking for is not success, what we're looking for is faithfulness. And that God's kingdom can't go forward unless there are people who are willing day in and day out to do the work of the ministry, whatever may be assigned to them. I think of Amy Ritchie. She's a missionary who also happens to worship here as part of this church. She's a supported worker. You may not know who she is, but God does. And she's working very hard at the tasks God given her to do. That's maybe your contribution. You may be on staff at a parachurch ministry. You may be part of uh, social services, something to help alleviate the effects of sin. God says, how could you have a church without those who are willing to do the work of ministry, even if they're not widely known to others? That's Andronicus and Junia. Number five, greet Ampliatus. Now, just to tell you, we're kind of making up the pronunciations as we go. That's what it looks like to me. If you hear somebody else pronounce this, they're probably right and I'm wrong, but we're going to call him Ampliatus. My dear friend in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. So again, if you don't know how to pronounce a name, just be really confident and say it loud and quickly and get on to the next one. <laughs> we're all doing the same thing. Okay, so Ampliatus and Stachys are identified as dear friends. Now, sometimes when we hear that phrase, we sort of hear it in modern context, and unfortunately, especially in sort of the ministry world, people will sometimes use the word dear friend simply to acknowledge that they know someone. For example, when I was a resident here at Calvary, uh, we took a trip together. I was on staff here at the church. We took a trip together to another church, a large church in another city. And we were uh, at that church, and the senior pastor of the church kind of wanted, was going to come out and sort of say a few minutes of greeting to us, which was very nice. So he came out, and he says, ah, these are my good friends who are here from Calvary Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he said, and you've come here with my dear friend. And then he looked down on his sheet, and he read the name of our executive pastor at the time and completely mispronounced it. <laughs> I feel for that. I know that feeling. But the point is, that's not what Paul is doing here. I don't think he's just trying to identify that he's heard of these people before. If that was the case, everybody would be called dear friend. I think what he's recognizing is that there are some people whose contribution to the kingdom of God is that they are willing to be friends with those who are in ministry in a full-time sort of way. You know, being friend of a pastor, that's not a very easy job. We don't make for very good friends. I say that, but it's true. We're so often giving to others that we don't often have a lot left to give to a relationship the way we probably should. But some people have been called by God uniquely to be friends to those who are in ministry, to be able to be more of a giver than they are a receiver, to be able to come alongside of someone who's been given a difficult assignment from the Lord and support them and encourage them in that role. I think of Kent Snewink, among many others. 
But Kent is the person that God uses here in our church to come alongside and befriend those who are in ministry and through that friendship enable people to do the work they've been called to do. Maybe that's your contribution. Maybe you've been asked to be friends with and support somebody who God has given a specific ministry assignment to and they wouldn't be able to do their assignment if you weren't their friend. God recognizes that as an integral part of why the church is thriving. Number six, verse 10, greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. That's really interesting language. The word for test is the word that's used other places in the Bible for a trial or for suffering. We don't know exactly what Apelles went through, but something very difficult had happened to him in life. And Paul is commending him because his contribution has been he made it through or is making it through the suffering still being faithful to God. You see, the world normally asks, what do you do? And we evaluate our value based on the contributions we've made in actions and activities. But one thing we forget is that the word endure is an active verb. <laughs> that if you are enduring suffering, you're actually accomplishing something. That some people have been given the assignment of taking new ground for the Lord, and other people have been given the assignment of not giving back ground that's already taken. If you have been assigned a difficult child or a difficult marriage or a difficult season in life and you are walking in that, and let's say you're not even walking, you're just standing. You're just making it long enough that you're not going backwards, but you've not denied Jesus. And you've not stopped praising his name. And you're standing firm. That's a contribution to the kingdom of God. I think of Edna Shore who in her journey through cancer here among us at the church, she's not stopped praising the Lord. Even when the circumstances haven't necessarily changed, if you're continuing to walk faithful to the Lord, what a testimony. Who wants to serve a God when the chips are down seems to disappear? If you in the midst of your suffering are still proclaiming the goodness of God, what an amazing testimony. And God recognizes that while outwardly you may say, but I'm not doing anything. Yes, you are. You are enduring suffering. And that's an amazing contribution because when Satan does a counter-strike, somebody's got to stand their ground. Somebody's got to not give way. And if that's your contribution, the Lord is recognizing that. Number, what are we on, seven? Number seven. Second half of verse 10, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, greet Herodian, my fellow Jew, greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Now one of the tricks here is we've got names, we don't necessarily know a lot about them, but we do have, interestingly enough, documents from outside the New Testament at the time in which the book of Romans was written. We've got lots of contracts, just secular sort of stuff that we've uh, dug up or found. And in those are hundreds of names, thousands of names. And what we're able to do is look for these kinds of names showing up other places. And it just so happens that Aristobulus and Narcissus, both of those names show up together 
in connection with the city of Rome. What we think is going on here is Aristobulus and Herodian and Narcissus are high-ranking officials in the Roman Empire. It would not be surprising that in the city of Rome, <laughs> there would be high-ranking officials in the Roman Empire. Now, they're not necessarily Christians. I don't think Paul is saying that here. What he is identifying is that there were some people in the church at Rome who worked for those people. And what that represents to me is that there are some people whose contribution has been that God has asked you to work in an environment, perhaps in government, perhaps in industry, where you are a Christian working for non-Christians in the halls of power. That in order for God to bring people to faith in the halls of power, he needs someone to be a faithful witness who's working there. But if you've never worked in that situation around those who are movers and shakers in the world's system, you don't necessarily know how difficult it can be to feel that tension torn between two kingdoms. The halls of power are the epicenter of the world's kingdom, and if you're a Christian, you're at the epicenter of Christ's kingdom, and those two kingdoms come in conflict on a daily basis in your job. And if you're being faithful as a Christian, whether it's in a business or in government or somewhere where the levers of power are being moved and you're being a faithful Christian, God recognizes that as an important contribution to the kingdom of God. I think of Roxanne Shire. She's a part of our congregation. She works for a mover and shaker in Grand Rapids as part of a law firm. She's there being a faithful Christian. If you're doing that, the world may not see that as a contribution. God thinks it's invaluable. Keep going with me. We already covered verse 12. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, Rufus, here's an interesting name that this would show up in this list. In the Gospel of Mark, in the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we read this verse. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, many of you may know this story from uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, that because Jesus was beaten so brutally, because he had no sleep, no food, had been, had been suffered so much, he was not physically capable of carrying his cross all the way up to the place where he was going to be crucified. Because he couldn't do it, the Roman Empire grabbed this man, Simon of Cyrene, and made him carry Jesus' cross for him the rest of the way. Now, the interesting thing, we're told about Simon in the other Gospels. Mark's the only one that gives us his children's name. And the question is, why? <laughs> what does that have to do with the story? Simon carries the cross. Why do we need to know what his children's name is? Well, it's important to remember the Gospel of Mark, we believe, is being written in the city of Rome probably five or ten years after the letter of Romans is written. We think Mark is telling us that Simon's son is Rufus 
because the original audience that's reading that gospel knows Rufus because he's in the church. And the really cool thing is imagine going out to breakfast, meeting a new guy from church, and you're like, hey, I'm new to the church. Can we go to lunch? And you go to lunch, and you go, okay, tell me about yourself. Well, my dad's name is Simon, and he helped Jesus carry his cross on the day he was crucified. How cool would that be? So to me, what Rufus represents is those among us who have a living connection to the past. When Lisa and I and our family were in England, uh, I think maybe three or four years ago, we had the chance to have tea, that's very British, with the daughter of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous, very influential British preacher in the 1900s in England. God worked through him in, in miraculous, wonderful, powerful ways. His daughter, by the time we had tea with her, she and her husband, she was, I think, in her 80s. It was so encouraging to just talk to her and have this living connection to the past and to hear what she had to say about how God had been at work in her dad and in the church and how things were, uh, were working and to have this living testimony that those stories that we've heard are true stories. Maybe that's your contribution. I think of Midge Olson, who'd be mortified that I'm using her name especially. She's not in her 80s, but the fact that I'm using her name... Her grandparents were founding members of Calvary Church. She's been here her whole life to listen to Midge tell stories about what God was doing in Calvary Church in the 70s or in the 60s, to hear about what God was up to in the 80s, to have that living connection to the past. That's an important contribution to the kingdom. Maybe that's the contribution you're making. Maybe you've seen things with your own eyes that the Lord has done, and you're continuing to testify to those generation after generation. After all, how will these stories continue on if there are not faithful believers who are able to say, but I was there. I saw what God did. You can trust him. He's a faithful God. So Rufus, to me, represents those who have that living connection to the past, who are willing to testify about God's faithfulness and his work to those who weren't there to see it firsthand. Keep going, Rufus. There's actually another person mentioned in that verse. Rufus chosen in the Lord, verse 13, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Now, we don't know her name, so we just got to call her Rufus's mother. But she represents to me those who have been a spiritual mother or father to those who are not their biological children. We don't know exactly the story, but apparently the Apostle Paul was somehow sort of adopted by this woman. We don't know for how long, but essentially she must have provided him hospitality. Perhaps she made meals for him. Perhaps she prayed regularly for him. Yes, even apostles need moms. And for whatever reason, the apostle Paul needed a mom, and this woman filled that role for him. I think today about people who have adopted children, literally, or those who are doing foster care or those who have chosen to be godparents, or those who have chosen to be spiritual grandparents for children that are not their biological grandchildren. Those who have taken in a woman or a man and said, basically, I'll be your father or your mother and shown hospitality and kindness and come alongside of them. If that's your contribution, well, you're just like Rufus's mother. I think of Pat and Heather Case, who are part of our congregation, who have been involved in foster care for some time now. How else is God going to show love to the fatherless 
and to the orphans unless people are willing to take on those who are not their biological children and be a parent to them. If you're done that, the world may not notice, but God does. That's your contribution, and it's an essential and important one. Last, number 10, verse 14, greet Asyncretus, Felgon, so here we are, just keep going, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Now, we don't know anything about these names from the scriptures. But again, like I told you, we have thousands of names from this time period from all sorts of documents. Some are secular history documents. Some are just contracts that we've dug up. We just got lots of names. And so what people have done is gone through those names and looked at them and tried to identify there are certain names that seem to go with certain things. In other words, one study has shown that nine of the names in this list are quite common slave names. How would we know that? Well, when people became slaves, their names were usually changed. That was an attempt to break the connection with the past. That did even happen here in North America as part of the slavery that happened here. When those names were changed, we understand and recognize that there were certain names that were often given to slaves. Nine of these names are common slave names. One of them in this list, Hermes, is one of the most common names given to slaves at the time. And that's because Hermes was the servant of the gods. And so when someone went into slavery, they often changed their name to Hermes. So we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty confident that probably Hermes, and if not him, someone else in this list, is either in slavery or has recently come out of slavery. And so what that represents to me is those here among us who are still living with the racism and difficulties that is the legacy of American slavery, those who've come to faith out of poverty, those who've come to faith while incarcerated, those who have been Christians and gone through a refugee situation, Essentially, those who are Christians, but in very difficult socioeconomic circumstances. And if you've never been in a situation, like I've never been in a situation, where you've had to deal with racism because of the hangover of American slavery, if you've never been incarcerated, if you've never lived through poverty, if you've never been a refugee, you and I might not understand how difficult it is to be faithful to God in those circumstances. But some here do, and God knows. And the recognition is, if we don't have people who are willing to be Christians in those environments, how is God going to demonstrate that he is a God who loves those who have been incarcerated, those who have been through slavery, those who live in poverty, and if he hasn't asked some of us to continue to live in those difficult socioeconomic circumstances, both to be a witness to others and a witness of God's faithfulness, how is his kingdom going to advance among all people? After all, who wants a God that only blesses the rich and the powerful? And some of your contributions have been that the Lord has asked you, perhaps not even of your own making, 
to endure difficult socioeconomic circumstances and to stay faithful to the Lord. When everything around you is fighting against you, wanting to make you bitter and angry and jealous, and you're choosing faithfulness to the Lord, maybe that's your contribution. The thing I love about this list, a wide diversity of contributions. God's church is not built on the backs of a few. God's church is built upon those contributions that the world ignores. The world is only interested in what's visible and outward appearance, but God looks on what's going on behind the scenes. And I hope you're able to find yourself somewhere on this list. I hope you're able to find loved ones on this list and encourage them. And to say, you know what? I see this in you. I see that contribution. What if you don't find yourself on the list? Don't be afraid. This is just one passage. It just happens that you weren't one of those named individuals. There's a lot more named individuals in the Bible. But the point is, hopefully this list gives you an idea for the kinds of things that God commends. The kinds of contributions that people are making. Now, if you're not doing anything, surely there's something that God has for you. But that's not the point of this morning. The point of this morning is, take another look. I bet that you are making a bigger contribution than anybody around you has led you to believe. And allow the Lord to use this list and perhaps other things to remind you that his church is not built on the backs of the few that are up front. His church and his kingdom is advancing because of the contributions that the world ignores, but they are incredibly important to God. And on Judgment Day, when Jesus returns, it's going to be these and these contributions that he acknowledges. And today, it's these and these contributions that the Lord is pleased with. So be encouraged. No one else may see what you're doing, but God sees it. And he recognizes the value of what you're doing.